Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fantasy, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. If you can believe it, we are now on episode 36 of season two. I don't know about you, but for me, this second season seems like it has absolutely flown by. I decided a few episodes ago that we'd call season two at 36 episodes, just like we did for season one. But now that we're here, and I've got two whole seasons of Fido under my belt, I think it's time to adjust things just a little bit. So, before we get into the final story of Season 2, let's talk a little about the future. I've mentioned that I wanted to shift the focus of Fido a little bit. Of course, it will always be about reading stories and giving you, the listener, a little bit of a diversion from your everyday life. The only small difference is that I'm broadening the scope of possibilities. Also, Season 3 is going to be different in another way. I've decided that since Fido isn't telling a serial story on its own, which is to say the story is different every episode, with the exception of longer chapter-based tales, that there's no real reason to divide things out into seasons, at least not right now. So, we aren't going to have a season three per se. What we're going to do is have an ongoing exploration. Sometimes single episode stories and sometimes longer ones, but always the same adventure you've come to know. In season one, I was trying things out. In season two, dialing in my process. And now that Fido has found its footing... It's time to remove the limitations of seasons and genres and see where that takes us. After this episode, I'll be taking a bit of a break, but not a long one. New episodes will start back up on September 12th. And you'll hear a subtle change to the tagline, but that's about all that's going to be different. Now, the patrons will still be getting some content over the next few weeks. I've recorded something fun and frightening from Algernon Blackwood. If you'd like to hear that, then you should join up, because that one won't be public. But sooner than you can say, once upon a next time, we'll be back to it. Now, for today's story. When I say H.G. Wells, you might think of The Time Machine, and that's probably coming one day to the show, too. But I wanted to read something a little lesser known from his considerable body of work. H.G. Wells is an interesting author in that much of his speculative science fiction ends up looking more like prophecy. He imagined a great many technologies and paths that humanity ended up achieving. If not exactly, then very similarly. Take Wikipedia, for example. In an essay called The Permanent World Encyclopedia, he wrote, A great number of workers would be engaged perpetually in perfecting this index of human knowledge and keeping it up to date. He also wrote, It will be made accessible to every individual. It need not be concentrated in any one single place. It can be reproduced exactly and fully in Peru, China, Iceland, Central Africa. The incredible thing about it is, I discovered much of this on Wikipedia, which H.G. Wells himself seems to have seen coming. There's a lot more to him as well, but let's get on with his actual writing. And now, as published in 1894 by H.G. Wells, The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. 
The buying of orchids always has in it a certain speculative flavor. You have before you the brown, shriveled lump of tissue, and for the rest you must trust your judgment, or the auctioneer, or your good luck, as your taste may incline. The plant may be moribund or dead, or it may be just a respectable purchase, fair value for your money, or perhaps, for the thing that has happened again and again, there slowly unfolds before the delighted eyes of the happy purchaser, day after day, some new variety, some novel richness, a strange twist of the labellum, or some subtler coloration or unexpected mimicry. Pride, beauty, and profit blossom together on one delicate green spike, and it may be even immortality. For the new miracle of nature may stand in need of a new specific name, and what so convenient as that of its discoverer, John Smithia. There have been worse names. It was perhaps the hope of some such happy discovery that made Winter Wedderburn such a frequent attendant at these sales. That hope, and also, maybe, the fact that he had nothing else of the slightest interest to do in the world. He was a shy, lonely, rather ineffectual man, provided with just enough income to keep off the spur of necessity, and not enough nervous energy to make him seek any exacting employments. He might have collected stamps or coins, or translated Horace, or bound books, or invented new species of diatoms— but as it happened, he grew orchids, and had one ambitious little hothouse. "'I have a fancy,' he said over his coffee, "'that something is going to happen to me today.' He spoke as he moved and thought, slowly. "'Oh, don't say that,' said his housekeeper, who was also his remote cousin, for something happening was a euphemism that meant only one thing to her. "'You must understand me. I mean nothing unpleasant.' though what I do mean I scarcely know. Today, he continued after a pause, Peters are going to sell a batch of plants from the Andamans and the Indies. I shall go up and see what they have. It may be I shall buy something good unawares. That may be it. He passed his cup for his second cupful of coffee. Are these the things collected by that poor young fellow you told me of the other day? asked his cousin as she filled his cup. Yes, he said, and became meditative over a piece of toast. Nothing ever does happen to me, he remarked presently, beginning to think aloud. I wonder why. Things enough happen to other people. There is Harvey. Only the other week, on Monday, he picked up sixpence. On Wednesday, his chicks all had the staggers. On Friday, his cousin came home from Australia. And on Saturday, he broke his ankle. What a whirl of excitement! compared to me. I think I would rather be without so much excitement, said his housekeeper. It can't be good for you. I suppose it's troublesome. Still, you see, nothing ever happens to me. When I was a little boy, I never had accidents. I never fell in love as I grew up. Never married. I wonder how it feels to have something happen to you, something really remarkable. That orchid collector was only thirty-six, twenty years younger than myself, when he died. And he had been married twice and divorced once. He had had malarial fever four times, and once he broke his thigh. He killed a Malay once, and once he was wounded by a poisoned dart. 
and in the end he was killed by jungle leeches. It must have all been very troublesome, but then it must have been very interesting, you know? Except perhaps the leeches. I am sure it was not good for him, said the lady with conviction. Perhaps not. And then Wedderburn looked at his watch. Twenty-three minutes past eight. I am going up by the quarter-to-twelve train, so that there's plenty of time. I think I shall wear my alpaca jacket. It is quite warm enough. And my grey felt hat and brown shoes, I suppose. He glanced out of the window at the serene sky and sunlit garden, and then nervously at his cousin's face. I think you had better take an umbrella if you are going to London, she said in a voice that admitted of no denial. There's all between here and the station coming back. When he returned, he was in a state of mild excitement. He had made a purchase. It was rare that he could make up his mind quickly enough to buy, but this time he had done so. There are vandas, he said, and a dendrobe, and some paleonophis. He surveyed his purchases lovingly as he consumed his soup. They were laid out on the spotless tablecloth before him, and he was telling his cousin all about them as he slowly meandered through his dinner. It was his custom to live all his visits to London over again in the evening for her and his own entertainment. I knew something would happen today, and I have bought all these. Some of them. Some of them. I feel sure, do you know, that some of them will be remarkable. I don't know how it is, but I feel just as sure as if someone had told me that some of these will turn out remarkable. That one, he pointed to a shriveled rhizome was not identified. It may be a paleonophis, or it may not. It may be a new species, or even a new genus, and it was the last that poor Batten ever collected. I don't like the look of it, said his housekeeper. It's such an ugly shape. To me, it scarcely seems to have a shape. I don't like those things that stick out, said the housekeeper. It shall be put away in a pot tomorrow. It looks, said the housekeeper, like a spider shamming dead. Wedderburn smiled and surveyed the root with his head on one side. It is certainly not a pretty lump of stuff, but you can never judge of these things from their dry appearance. It may turn out to be a very beautiful orchid indeed. How busy I shall be tomorrow. I must see tonight just exactly what to do with these things, and tomorrow I shall set to work. They found poor Batten lying dead or dying in a mangrove swamp, I forget which, he began again presently, with one of these very orchids crushed up under his body. He had been unwell for some days with some kind of native fever, and I suppose he fainted. These mangrove swamps are very unwholesome. Every drop of blood, they say, was taken out of him by the jungle leeches. It may be that very plant that cost him his life to obtain. I think none the better of it for that. "'Men must work, though women may weep,' said Wedderburn with profound gravity. "'Fancy dying away from every comfort in a nasty swamp. "'Fancy being ill of fever with nothing to take but chlorodyne and quinine. "'If men were left to themselves, they would live on chlorodyne and quinine, "'and no one round you but horrible natives. "'They say the Andaman Islanders are most disgusting wretches, and... Anyhow, they can scarcely make good nurses, not having the necessary training, and just for people in England to have orchids. I don't suppose it was comfortable, but some men seem to enjoy that kind of thing, said Wedderburn. 
Anyhow, the natives of his party were sufficiently civilized to take care of all his collection until his colleague, who was an ornithologist, came back again from the interior, though they could not tell the species of the orchid and had let it wither. And it makes these things more interesting. It makes them disgusting. I should be afraid of some of the malaria clinging to them. And just think, there has been a dead body lying across that ugly thing. I never thought of that before. There, I declare I cannot eat another mouthful of dinner. I will take them off the table if you like, and put them in the window seat. I can see them just as well there. The next few days he was indeed singularly busy in his steamy little hothouse, fussing about with charcoal, lumps of teak, moss, and all the other mysteries of the orchid cultivator. He considered he was having a wonderfully eventful time. In the evening he would talk about these new orchids to his friends, and over and over again he reverted to his expectation of something strange. Several of the Vandas and the Dendrobium died under his care, but presently the strange orchid began to show signs of life. He was delighted, and took his housekeeper right away from jam-making to see it at once. Directly he made the discovery. "'That is a bud,' he said, "'and presently there will be a lot of leaves there. "'And those little things coming out here are aerial rootlets. "'They look to me like little white fingers poking out of the brown. "'I don't like them,' said his housekeeper. "'Why not?' "'I don't know. They look like fingers trying to get at you. "'I can't help my likes and dislikes. "'I don't know for certain, but I don't think there are any orchids I know "'that have aerial rootlets quite like that.' It may be my fancy, of course. You see, they are a little flattened at the ends. I don't like them, said his housekeeper, suddenly shivering and turning away. I know it's very silly of me, and I'm very sorry, particularly as you like the things so much, but I can't help thinking of that corpse. But it may not be that particular plant. It was merely a guess of mine. His housekeeper shrugged her shoulders. Anyhow, I don't like it, she said. Wedderburn felt a little hurt at her dislike to the plant, but that did not prevent his talking to her about orchids generally, and this orchid in particular, whenever he felt inclined. There are such queer things about orchids, he said one day, such possibilities of surprises. You know, Darwin studied their fertilization and showed that the whole structure of an ordinary orchid flower was contrived in order that moths might carry the pollen from plant to plant. Well, it seems that there are lots of orchids known, the flower of which cannot possibly be used for fertilization in that way. Some of the Cypripediums, for instance. There are no insects known that can possibly fertilize them, and some of them have never been found with seed. But how do they form new plants? By runners and tubers, and that kind of outgrowth. That is easily explained. The puzzle is, what are the flowers for? Very likely, he added, my orchid may be something extraordinary in that way. If so, I shall study it. I have often thought of making researches as Darwin did. But hitherto I have not found the time, or something else has happened to prevent it. The leaves are beginning to unfold now. I do wish you would come and see them. But she said that the orchid house was so hot it gave her the headache— she had seen the plant once again, and the aerial rootlets, which were now some of them more than a foot long, had uncomfortably reminded her of tentacles reaching out after something. And they got into her dreams, growing after her with incredible rapidity. 
so that she had settled to her entire satisfaction that she would not see that plant again, and Wedderburn had to admire its leaves alone. They were of the ordinary broad form, and a deep glossy green with splashes and dots of deep red towards the base. He knew of no other leaves quite like them. The plant was placed on a low bench near the thermometer, and close by was a simple arrangement by which a tap dripped on the hot water pipes and kept the air steamy. And he spent his afternoons now with some regularity, meditating on the approaching flowering of this strange plant. And at last the great thing happened. Directly he entered the little glass house, he knew that the spike had burst out. Although his great Paleonophis Loei hid the corner where his new darling stood, there was a new odor in the air, a rich, intensely sweet scent that overpowered every other in that crowded, steaming little greenhouse. Directly he noticed this, he hurried down to the strange orchid, and behold, the trailing green spikes now bore three great splashes of blossom from which this overpowering sweetness proceeded. He stopped before them in an ecstasy of admiration. The flowers were white, with streaks of golden orange upon the petals. The heavy labellum was coiled into an intricate projection, and a wonderful bluish-purple mingled there with the gold. He could see at once that the genus was altogether a new one. And the insufferable scent! How hot the place was! The blossoms swam before his eyes. He would see if the temperature was right— he made a step towards the thermometer. Suddenly, everything appeared unsteady. The bricks on the floor were dancing up and down. Then the white blossoms, the green leaves behind them, the whole greenhouse seemed to sweep sideways and then in a curve upward. At half-past four, his cousin made the tea, according to their invariable custom. But Wedderburn did not come in for his tea— he is worshipping that horrid orchid, she told herself, and waited ten minutes. His watch must have stopped. I will go and call him. She went straight to the hothouse, and, opening the door, called his name. There was no reply. She noticed that the air was very close, and loaded with an intense perfume. Then she saw something lying on the bricks between the hot water pipes. For a minute, perhaps, she stood motionless. He was lying, face upward, at the foot of the strange orchid. The tentacle-like aerial rootlets no longer swayed freely in the air, but were crowded together, a tangle of grey ropes, and stretched tight with their ends closely applied to his chin and neck and hands. She did not understand. Then she saw, from under one of the exultant tentacles upon his cheek, there trickled a little thread of blood. With an inarticulate cry, she ran towards him, and tried to pull him away from the leech-like suckers. She snapped two of these tentacles, and their sap dripped red. Then the overpowering scent of the blossom began to make her head reel. How they clung to him! She tore at the tough ropes, and he and the white inflorescence swam about her. She felt she was fainting. She knew she must not. She left him and hastily opened the nearest door, and after she had panted for a moment in the fresh air, she had a brilliant inspiration. She caught up a flower-pot and smashed in the windows by the end of the greenhouse. Then she re-entered. She tugged now with renewed strength at Wedderburn's motionless body and brought the strange orchid crashing to the floor. It still clung with the grimmest tenacity to its victim. In a frenzy, she lugged it and him into the open air.' 
Then she thought of tearing through the sucker rootlets one by one, and in another minute she had released him and was dragging him away from the horror. He was white and bleeding from a dozen circular patches. The odd-job man was coming up the garden, amazed at the smashing of glass, and saw her emerge, hauling the inanimate body with red-stained hands. For a moment he thought impossible things. "'Bring some water!' she cried, and her voice dispelled his fancies. When, with unnatural alacrity, he returned with the water, he found her weeping with excitement, and with Wedderburn's head upon her knee, wiping the blood from his face. "'What's the matter?' said Wedderburn, opening his eyes feebly and closing them again at once. "'Go and tell Annie to come out here to me, and then go for Dr. Haddon at once,' she said to the odd-job man as soon as he brought the water, and added, seeing he hesitated, "'I will tell you all about it when you come back.' Presently Wedderburn opened his eyes again, and, seeing that he was troubled by the puzzle of his position, she explained to him, "'You fainted in the hothouse.' "'And the orchid?' "'I will see to that,' she said. Wedderburn had lost a good deal of blood, but beyond that he had suffered no very great injury. They gave him brandy mixed with some pink extract of meat, and carried him upstairs to bed. His housekeeper told her incredible story in fragments to Dr. Haddon. "'Come to the orchid house and see,' she said. The cold outer air was blowing in through the open door, and the sickly perfume was almost dispelled. Most of the torn aerial rootlets lay already withered amidst a number of dark stains upon the bricks. The stem of the inflorescence was broken by the fall of the plant, and the flowers were growing limp and brown at the edges of the petals. The doctor stooped towards it, then saw that one of the aerial rootlets stirred feebly and hesitated. The next morning the strange orchid still lay there, black now and putrescent. The door banged intermittently in the morning breeze, and all the array of Wedderburn's orchids was shriveled and prostrate. But Wedderburn himself was bright and garrulous, upstairs in the story of his strange adventure. Well, that was a close call. It just goes to show you that you have to be careful what you wish for. Wedderburn longed for something interesting to happen, and when it did, it very nearly killed him. I was looking around for interesting stories to record, and happened across a collection of H.G. Wells' short stories, and when I read this one, I was immediately certain I wanted to record it. Now, if you're a fan of Broadway shows, or maybe just Rick Moranis, you might know why. This story immediately reminded me of Little Shop of Horrors. Of course, I had to know if this tale inspired Little Shop, the dark comedy about an alien plant that feeds on human blood and very nearly conquers the world. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should. It turns out that H.G. Wells may not have inspired it directly, but the flowering of the strange orchid did inspire Arthur C. Clarke's tale, The Reluctant Orchid, which was possibly the inspiration for Little Shop of Horrors in 1960. Along the way, while looking into this tale, I discovered that there was a bit of an orchid craze in the Victorian era, and they called it Orchid Delirium. The obsession with collecting and cultivating these plants caused some issues with the delicate floral systems in some places, and as you might expect, international wild orchid trading has become outlawed to prevent damage to the ecosystems. 
This story paints a picture of an average Victorian orchid hunter who happens across a far less than average orchid. And I'm inclined to think that since Wells was a fairly outspoken commentator in his work, that this little orchid story was meant to pack a bit of a satirical cautionary punch about obsession and meddling in things without a care of consequences. And also, with all of the Lovecraft that I've had on the brain lately, I can't help but wonder if our spooky, dire little tentacled orchid didn't creep into Lovecraft's mind a bit as he crafted his own universe— Pure speculation, but Lovecraft did read some H.G. Wells, and that orchid would be right at home, I think. I hope you enjoyed The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. I think it's a fun one to go out with on Season 2, and when we return, we'll dive right back in. I can't wait to see what's over that horizon. Now, if you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. You can also go to FidoPodcast.com and listen on any device. Make sure and share Fido with your friends and family if you like what you're hearing. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. Don't miss the new store as well. T-shirts, sweatshirts, stickers, and even a Fido pint glass can all be yours. Look for the link on my website. You also don't want to miss out on the exclusive new Fedork Fan t-shirt. You'll have to message me in order to get one because they're not on any website. So, if you're a true Fedork, let me know. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fido Podcast. And if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There is behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, merchandise discounts, and if you join, you'll get a personal, handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fido sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of Season 2, Episode 36, and the conclusion of Season 2. Watch for the next episode of Fido, coming soon. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time. Fido is a member of the Pizza Rice Podcasting Collaborative. Check us out at pizzaricepodcast.com.